0: Let's get going again. Let's, uh, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for this time uh, this week. Uh, we enjoy women, and we're grateful that you made them. We'd ask that you'd be making us into the kind of men that would deserve the best. We'd have lives ahead of us that uh, are enjoyed. In your son's name, amen. Okay, brief, brief recap. In discussing the sum of all human desire, we talked about what made the man, made any agent, man or woman, an agent, uh, a distinct agent called self. And what that, the, the problem of self, the problem of feeling, required that government, the, the expression of will and willpower, to create this buffer and arrangement or inventory of pain and pleasure in our lives. And in that task, as you just grow and mature, you begin to realize that that things start to stratify, you know, that you have the need to govern others and be governed by others in your life. And we begin to, that introduced the idea that a hierarchy um, is a natural phenomena of the development of self, and that um, carries with it both like arrogance or, or uh, rebellion, and we defined those terms from Lewis uh, yesterday, um, uh, try, as a, at trying to get you to, one, as a, as a man, grab hold of what what you are as an agent. You know, that, that, that you're going to be making, like as of tomorrow, we're going to be looking at what the actual mystery of woman is, and for you to get to that place, to choose what you will do, you have to have a definition of who you are and what you're about, and and if you have a strong philosophy, and feel free to make, sort of make your own adjustments to what I'm talking about. Uh, you may say I could tweak this better. Mr. not that bright, so you feel free. But you need to have this this idea of yourself because you're going to be deciding what to do on the basis not just what they are, but who you are and what you're about. Um, so the hierarchy steps in, and we know that that directly affects, in some ways, that we don't expect. Like we talked about how, um, as Lewis said, that obedience is an erotic necessity. That an erotic, not a neurotic, <laughs> not like a neuroses, but it's a erotic, much better, I'll tell you, um, a necessity, that women have a far greater realization of power and authority in their desire for sex than we we have a, a, a physical um spiritual desire for it and a response to their beauty they're not thinking of us as beautiful um, uh, but they they do have a reaction to to height and they do have a reaction to um, uh, men that are better than they are. So w- with that in mind, we're stepping into this area of noblesse oblige. Now, I'm, I'm not a fan of the French, and you know that. Um, but often, the French have the best word for something. Uh, what's called, in French, the mojusst. Now, the mojusst means the best possible word. So the French, it's almost a... a dancing on my grave, that they would have the best word for the best word. Uh, but the juste in this situation is noblesse oblige. Um, it means, simply put, the obligations of nobility. Because, two, two problems, because obligation is frowned upon and nobility is frowned upon, we have it in our constitution that there cannot be um, titles of nobility. In America, you cannot be a lord. You're going be a duke, a viscount, a marquise, a baron, or a baronet. <laughs> you could be one in England, but you can't be one here. Our whole country was founded on uh, sloughing off of those sorts of things because of the Enlightenment, and we have developed as that idea of egalitarianism has crept on to try to contrary be contrary to the hierarchical. And remember, Lewis said. You don't choose between hierarchy and equality. You choose between hierarchy and tyranny. Those are the uh, you, you will be get you will get tyrants if you don't have authorities. Um, so this this idea is generally laughed at. Noblesse oblige. I have make the point in the first paragraph that you run across it in Bernie Wooster in a P.G. Woodhouse novel when he's uh, being told he's got to do something by an ant that he despises, and, and he says to Jeeves in some moment, well, no bless um, you know he, it's, that, it's that overly wrought, kind of silly uh, anachronism regarding um, uh, the obligations that people of the upper crust seem to think they have. Well, that's what it actually refers to, and it is... Uh, Funny, because the people in Woodhouse don't have any true nobility. They just belong to the upper crust. And them making those kind of comments like, like they were um, uh, <coughs> the Duke of Cumberland uh, responding to somebody um, makes it hilarious. But obligation of nobility here on the side. I looked it up in Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable. Noble birth imposes the obligation of high-minded principles and noble actions. Now he says noble birth because that's what—it's the nobles that had to do it—the people that were that were uh, <coughs> highly placed by highly placed by uh, their birth. Uh, there's coffee, if, John, if you want to get it. Um, where this goes, when you, when, once you establish a hierarchy, once you start to think of yourself in terms of I'm finding where my dignity sits, where I, where I am in the ranking, um, one of the things I mentioned, uh, I didn't mention yesterday, regarding uh, keeping arrogance in check um, was the, the, the task that being high is a distinct task from celebrity. Um, we have a culture not of nobility but of celebrity because we cannot stand to not have people above us that we look at and admire but then we love to watch them rise and fall in Hollywood and we love to watch them get caught up in scandals and and we don't think that fame and celebrity has any debt at all to us matter of fact we prefer it that way, we'd rather not have Gwyneth Paltrow have any thing to do with me uh, or uh, uh, pick a pick a celebrity. We all want to know about them. We want to have a cult of celebrity. This is not that. Nobility is a place that you have gotten by this equation of you are humane to the degree you govern yourself. You live in a civilized society to the degree that society is 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 uh, governed, and you are a noble to the degree you are of service to that society. So you, you, you're. It's a different equation. It's not, I'm a great artist, or I'm a great actor, or I'm a great musician. That produces celebrity, which has its own benefits and its own detriments. But nobility is the arena where you find that that your governance, your establishment of self, has become notable. Uh, When you live in a town long enough, Moscow, Idaho, or any other town, you begin to realize who the grand old families are. They generally own a lot of real estate. They have been involved in all of the circumstances the wife serves on all the committees and is the head of the alumni association at the university or some such thing. Um, they have started to have broad effect, and not necessarily only in politics. It can be real estate. It can be money. It can be business. It can be involved in the social, the social cir- circumstance. I talked there is coffee if you want to grab your gut coke. <laughs> um, which works. Um, we're talking about noblesse oblige. Uh, did we define that? Did we that? did. The obligations of nobility, and how it is not um, celebrity, because celebrity has no obligation to you. Um, but it is the extension of your will. When your will gets broad enough to include you might say others, there's a glory of ratio. Um, let's say we got uh, something like 10 guys here, or 9 guys here. 9 guys. Um, Jesus had 12. Had 9. And they were probably more devoted to him. Than <laughs> more than me, but Let's just pretend for a moment. I have a beer. Uh, let's say you are just rapt at everything I said. To him. It just—he's amazing. <laughs> I'm going to believe everything he says. Now, I could walk away from that situation with a nine to one ratio of self glorification. Any time you affect. You're in a social situation, you go with friends down to the video store, you still do that, I know, you used to do that, go to video stores with your friends, and your will, because you are wiser and more dominant, dominates the selection of the video. Simple as that. You extended your will to where they could have had a will, in their own special little way, but your will because you had whatever degree of power sociologically or rhetorically or whatever else it was, you gained the day, you won the election. There's a ratio of 5 to 1 or 3 to 1, whatever it is, you get, your kingdom expands, your area of control expands. Now when a person gains a lot of that, say you're Alexander the Great, and you say, okay, I just conquered Persia, millions of people, All of them have to do what I say. You're Napoleon. You attempt to take Russia. well, Or you take most of Europe. Uh, you you got this. You're an emperor now. Because that degree of glory, it's no different than going to the video store. Your will is guiding other people's lives. That is what... And and that just makes you in charge. You could do that by force and punishment. But nobility is suddenly realizing that that ratio has an obligation to it. These are not just down that I might have what I want from them, but I have created an obligation from me to them. Now, it's going to be obvious to you when you select a woman to propose to, and if God forbid she says yes, um, you just gained a citizen. You just gained an obligation. Didn't Gain a companion. Remember what Lewis said about equality. It is, uh, it's is—it's not for courtship, and it's not for sex. Equality is not there in that. You're not picking a friend. You can have friends here. You don't want to have sexual relations with a friend. The friends don't have that kind of relationship. Lovers do, and lovers have it in a hierarchical model. The man dominant, the woman submissive not just in the sex, but in the in the relationship, you're, you are finding naturally that your kingdoms, all of you, are going to have kingdoms someday, a fiefdom that you're going to expand into. And this idea that with that rise in height, you are not becoming the celebrity of your family. You are not the celebrity of your wife. You're not just famous in her life. Now that's a... Sometimes we treat young love this way, we think we're just trying to convince the girl, she, us, or we, we, them, that, that they would have the same kind of relationship to us that they would have to meeting a rock star that we liked or a movie star that we liked, that I would be a celebrity to them. And the, the reason we governed through, went through hierarchy and the nature of the sum of all human desire was so that, that that notion wouldn't find purchase in your life. You would not be able to go, no, I am becoming her Lord, like it says in First Peter, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And it tells the women, and you are her children, if you do likewise, and let nothing terrify you. It's advice that they think of you not as a, the movie star in their life, but as the Lord in their life. You are actually representing, like Jesus Christ in the church, Lord in the church. Husband and wife, Christ in the church. So getting it firmly in your mind, you're establishing something distinct from fame, even if it's just a small personal fame. Oh, I really like him, he's so cute. I really like the way he behaves. That's sort of fame material like you would like an actor, like you would like um, a a musician. So what we have is this um, difference of category that can be easily mistaken for the other. And when we realize that it's an up and down relationship, there are duties to those above you and obligations to those below you. That's And so when people are below you, they're obliged to submit. Your children will be obliged to submit. Your wife is obliged to submit. But that means you're obliged to rule. You know? Now that could be just ruling doesn't make you righteous. Ruling wisely makes you righteous. But ruling doesn't make you righteous. Well, the idea that, um, that comes with that, and Lewis addresses this as the idea of um, a, a kind of spirit in the ruler, uh, where he, which he calls in uh, Abolition of Man, if you get a chance, short book, well worth it. Um, this comes from that, his first quote. The chest, magnanimity, sentiment, these are the indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man. It may be said that by it, that, it, that it is by this middle element that man is man. For by his intellect, he is mere spirit, and by his appetite, mere animal. He had said earlier in the passage that you think up here and command up here, that is your spirit, this, you would say your groin, you know, your stomach, um, those are your appetites, and you can command your appetites without, without sentiment. And we, we, but if you have a liaison that's a healthy one, Magnanimity, what Lewis and Aristotle call it, um, means great soul. Magnus, great, animus, soul. Okay? So that you have a great soul. This idea that um, you have the task of, of, of broad good. You're trying to not only make you and your life peaceful inside you, you're not just creating this buffer state around you that your life would be peaceful, You're taking the obligation of all those in your charge that their lives, because remember, they're seeking peace as much as you. Your wife is seeking peace, the woman you want to marry is seeking peace, and she wants to know that you, when you take charge of her life, will make peace for her. But kids want to grow up in a situation where they look back and go, I had a good day after you start meeting people. (coughs) Realize how good you had it. They want to be able to look back on that. I grew up in a Christian home, uh, godly parents, and, and I met a lot of people who would constantly bemoan the fact that they didn't get to grow up in the kind of house I grew up in. Uh, their parents fought, there was a disarray, there was cataclysm and, and the like. Well, We're trying to in nobility. As we get put into this place of control, that's what makes peace. Remember, peace isn't an accident. Peace isn't a magical thing from God that if you pray enough, you'll get it. If you order yourself enough, you'll get it. If you want spiritual peace, you have to get spiritually ordered. You have to settle things with God. You have to confess your sins. You have to, you have to get right with Him. You've got to get a peace treaty in place with God, and you will be at peace with God. And all the rest of your life requires that, too. So when, as you start to expand your boundaries... You've got this, uh, this uh, task that is being put on you. Because it's a hierarchy and because everybody wants peace, now you've taken responsibility to produce that. And then, unless you just want to have servile wretches like the Soviet Union that just shuffle through their lives in black and white clothes and, and do what the state requires and the people at the top of the state can do what they want. What ends up happening is rebellion. That's what happened in France in the 1790s. Um, The Ancien Régime lost touch, the top of the heap lost touch with what (laughs) millions of people were dealing with, and they just soaked them until finally bad things happened. Uh, So women are not just looking for this, the kids that come along and get to influence them, they come out of the chute. You know, they're completely dependent on you and you could actually brainwash them pretty easily. The woman comes to you as a verifiable adult, you know, already set in some of her ways, already measuring her own life and her own desires. She's going to be the prime observer and beneficiary of how magnanimous you are. Uh, With Christ, it's to do unto others as you would have men do unto you. Um, I have this definition from Webster, no Webster, on the side on magnanimity. Greatness of mind, the elevation or dignity of soul, which encounters danger and trouble with tranquility and firmness, which raises the possessor above revenge, which makes <coughs> him delight in acts of benevolence, which makes him disdain injustice and meanness, and prompts him to sacrifice personal ease, interest, and safety for the accomplishments of useful and noble objects. What Lewis writes Abolition of Man about, where this comes from, is he's writing about the state of education at his time, which you will recognize, having been to college or in any kind of public educational system, you will recognize the kind of attack, that sentiment, that, that this indebtedness to your fellow man by this kind of virtue, trying to destroy that. They want to make drones or worker bees for the hive. The modern mind wants to not have you think in these sorts of terms. Everyone is equal, and these sorts of notions that make you believe in what they would call the sentimental are bad for you. Um, We don't, um, in all of this, like we've talked about with hierarchy, we do not want to have people who like the idea of what they get in the word nobility to be motivated to grow their nobility um, so that they get that, that they're a getter out of the situation. Um, like it says in Ecclesiastes, with much knowledge comes much vexation. You know, that's uh, that's what you get. I think if Spider-Man was told, what was it? With great power, power comes great responsibility or something like that. Yeah, now, what you might want to consider as we apply this as we go to the task of making inroads into the to, to, to the herd of women, when you walk into a uh, social situation, we naturally—and I've heard in those days correctly—scan the room. Who's there? Who's not there? Who's she? Oh, my goodness. Oh, who's she? And, uh, and you, you you find your mind sorting them out, not alphabetically, but by hotitude. <laughs> and, of course, you naturally think, because you're an egotist, that the hottest is the woman God made for you. You would like to think so. You would like to think that um, the best women in a situation um Uh, are there for your uh, predatory ways. Uh, You might want to imagine that they are thinking the same thing. Okay? They walk into a room, they notice the guys. They're watching the guys. Now, they're watching them on different standards. Remember, their sense of erotic is different from yours. They're not checking out how tight your pants are. Oh, my. They don't care about your butt. They don't care about whether your shirt's open to your navel. You see a girl with a shirt open to her navel, y- you notice. It's an attack on your very righteousness. But you notice. They don't care if they see it all the way down to here. They get a little bit grossed out. We used to have to deal with that here in the house. because We have rules about guys and girls living in the house. and <coughs> We know that people have to go to the bathroom. And we say, you know, be modest when you go to the bathroom. And the one real time I had to deal with it was because a guy was going to and from the bathroom in a towel. And the girls complained. Now he wasn't, he was a built guy, he was, in, he was muscular, he was in shape, but it grossed them out to run into him in the, in the hall with, that, with just a towel wrapped around him. They did, it wasn't, it wasn't, oh my heavens, our, our heart can't stop beating, oh Mr. Wilson, please save us from our urges. It wasn't that. <laughs> They're considering something else. And the things they consider, like when they consider a man to be handsome, they will notice certain qualities, but you'll look at those qualities and realize that they're qualities that are symbolic of things like this the strong jaw, well dressed. Now, it's not that the well dressed is pretty, maybe, it has a it might be pretty quality, but the well dressed means he's in submission to his society. His civilization, he knows what he's about, he's thought about it. Strong jaw in our history of our culture, ever since the Normans showed up with wheat chins, um, that we realized that the, the strong Anglo-Saxon or Viking look was conveyed something. It conveyed something. It's not how pretty it is, it's what it conveys. They're looking at the same things, too. So when you walk in and you think, oh, she's really, and then you meet her and she's really nice and she's really uh, desirable. She's making the same assessment. I was asked the other day by a young man, not in this situation, um, so it's not any of you, um, what, how should he feel about going through a party? Was it wrong for him to go talk to all the pretty girls? I said, no, but it's foolish, and it's not much of a gentleman. You should talk to everybody. You should talk to all the men, you should talk to all the women. You should give time to the plain girls. You should give time to the old lady whose house it is, or whatever it is, you know, you give time. Because a gentleman will, will will have these obligations set on him in his life. And I said, you have to realize that that, that charm or care of manner conveys far more to what a sensible girl will want, a quality girl will want, than you can possibly imagine. So considering what some of these obligations, remember, they will tend women will tend to marry up. So if you're looking for a great woman, she's gonna want someone greater than she is. Okay, just to say, okay, wherever she is, she wants something qualitatively that from her vantage point she's going to be marrying into a greater good. It's not just she's the greatest thing and I want her, therefore it's meant to be. That's not how life works. She's got a choice, at least currently in this society, that she has a choice. Um, it says here in 1 Timothy as for the rich in this world, charge them not to be haughty. This is basic social circumstances that where rich people existed in biblical times. And well, this is the advice of it. It doesn't say give away all your money. It doesn't say don't be rich. It says don't be haughty, nor set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God who richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy. They're basically saying be humble about this and enjoy the wealth you have. Enjoy it. But then it says they are to do good To be rich in good deeds, liberal and generous. They're supposed to take their position and benefit from it. Be noble with it. Feel that obligation to others. Help the poor. It doesn't say, you may not have wealth, or it's wrong until you make your income the same as the guy working at McDonald's, because that's not how finances work that guy will have a million dollars again in short order because he's just more talented and more brainy and he's going to work harder than the guy working at McDonald's. So he should always have care for his fellow believer or this other guy who, and and take him out to lunch and be generous to him. We have to be sure that out of this fake sense, this piety of, I would call it a Gnostic piety, um, that somehow doing without ourselves, or not remarking on greatness, not thinking about... It. Nobody wants to tell men. Now, I'm not telling you, the, the married men here, the three of you, you are better than your wife. I know all your wives. I like all your wives. You are better than your wives. Just as an article of the cosmos, it's not not a choice. you single guys, you're not better than anybody yet. You've got to prove yourself to who you're better than and who's going to want you because you're better than. That's why these girls married these guys, because they looked up and found them and said, this is the better that I want in my life, who shares enough of the directions and where I'm going. That sort of thing is... uh, frowned upon, even think about it, because they automatically think, when you speak of being better, when you speak of nobility, both the person who hears it starts to hear what it's going to do for them, what kind of get it is for them, and everybody else suspects that they're thinking that. Nobody suspects that you're going to walk into this and go, okay, I'm taking this job, this higher position, this thing I need, because people need me to run the show. This girl needs me in her life. The illustration of the parable of the talents for the guy who has the one talent, he goes out and buries it. This is about people that have the ten talents going out and burying it. They don't they don't realize that they're minimizing what the point of greatness is. God made people different. And it's not just a difference of horizontal, it's a difference of vertical. Go back to the previous chapter. It's a it's a difference of hierarchy. It's a degree of government. If you want the best woman in the room, you've got to be the best man in the room. Simple. Maybe even better than the best man in the room. You've You've got to be the kind of guy that says, I can admit that I have what it takes, but I know the obligations of what it takes. One, I've got to be faithful to God morally. I may not be haughty or arrogant. I may not be difficult to live with. I have to be condescending, I have to bestow honor on the woman as a weaker vessel. I've got to do all sorts of things from this height, kind of like Jesus did. Jesus walked around knowing who was God. What a a difficult thing to carry. And he spent his time being magnanimous to all, to the whole world. Um... Thinking you're humble by denying the presence of better is a far prouder and selfish thing to do. It has made you self-absorbed. It's made you self-absorbed. Because if you step into the role of husband, this is what we're about, you step into the role of husband, like your son, as Jane thought, um fellow traveler, compatriot, uh, um, bondfellow with your wife, and not her lord, you, it allows you the self-absorption that you, you kind of coddle the whole time. I've noticed in young people, I'm sure it's not present here, of, of this generation, that there is not a whole lot of interest in the needs of others. Everybody's getting ahead themselves, maybe, and maybe working hard at getting ahead themselves, but they become self absorbed. Now, when you say noblesse oblige, and it's, you you know, that's a big idea for me, but there it is on the crest noblesse oblige. And I put this two headed Austrian threatening eagle on there. I don't know where that comes from, but did I put that there because I wanted to man that up, that French stuff right <laughs> across the top. It was, it was a little bit, but I figured, hey, look at that Austrian Habsburg uh, <coughs> and shield look, might, and it's blood red too, good blood red. <coughs> um, it's not, I want to keep warning people against the anachronisms, the the wishful castles in the sky. Wouldn't it be neat if I were admired? Sort of notions. Uh, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Bonnie Prince and the Rebellion of the 45, but uh, that still carries today. People are still. You can still buy Scottish shortbread cookies with pictures of the Bonnie Prince on them. This is the Young Pretender, Charles. Um, who was the grandson of James II, who was removed from the throne for being a Catholic, um, trying to get back to the throne, one of the Stuart monarchs. And it failed. It failed tragically, but it created a great story of, of loss and romance. And, uh, but we're not playing a game. That, the followers were called Jacobites because for James, the Stuart King James, Jacob was the Hebraism of James. So they were called Jacobites. But, a little, little information here. Um, we're looking at a task that is separate before us. Now, in, these, in this notion, there are what I call, used to call it in a separate lecture, I called them four severities. The reason I call them four severities is because they were ethics... That were that were darker, not ethics that were darker. So much as, as courage is, is a dark ethic, uh, because it, it assumes that you're standing under whatever kind of threat. Courage is a good one too, but it's not what we're covering. We're covering these four: dignity, honor, integrity, and gravity. Now these are all the point where you might say that what we've covered thus far. I am a self, I need to govern, I have a task of governing, an end to my government, and I start to expand my government, because that's the nature of the private life, and I begin to realize, if I'm thinking clearly about the history of the world at all, that it's a hierarchy, and now Evan is telling me that I have a debt. Oh, thanks, I paid money for this. But I, now I have to pay out for the rest of the world, this debt. Well, I want you to have in place the categories that you're working with, what the words actually mean. Dignity is the word that references where you stand, how great you are. That's the place. But when Lewis talked about it in the essay on hierarchy, it was somewhere, uh, um, somewhere, everything except God has some natural superior Everything except unformed matter has some natural inferior. All right, before that, according to this conception, degrees of value are are objectively present in the universe. That's what we're talking about. Your dignity, that's why they call an ambassador a dignitary, because it's referencing what dignity is held. The king is a certain dignity, a viscount is a certain dignity. A president is a certain dignity. A father is a certain dignity. An employer is a certain dignity. Where do you stand? Where you stand, you'll notice here on something, just like we did yesterday, we had that list of verses you could read through with a different doctrine of hierarchy in your mind, and the Bible would start to sound different to you. Like Lewis said, everything written before the 1700s was going to be was going to need this view in order to be understood correctly. You come back to the scriptures, and you don't go all pale when Solomon says the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? You don't have a problem with that because you're no longer a democrat. You're no longer a someone who shook their fist at the Lord's anointed in 1776 and fought against the crown. You're no longer that because, of course, now you're a hierarch. The Passage here in Timothy. The saying is sure. If anyone aspires to the office of bishop, he desires a noble task. Now a bishop must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, sensible, dignified, hospitable, and apt teacher. Now we often go to things like this, you know, qualification for deacon, qualification for bishop, and we're we're thinking about, wasn't it great to be in the kind of Christian community that they actually look at these things and actually consider before but we, we're thinking of this from an entirely different angle. We're thinking of it in terms of reshaping our philosophy of the world, coming back at a verse like this and going, okay, certain words, he desires a noble task. And he must be dignified. Now, it doesn't mean that you, that you have to put on the amount of weight that Evan puts on and wear a jacket <coughs> and say harumph at certain. That's not... That's not dignity. It's not that, you know, again, all of these things have taken it in the shorts, all of these ideas, like noblesse oblige, because the world who is filled with egalitarian people or egalitarian theor- uh, theoreticians who want to control you by equality, they don't like any of these terms. This digni- being dignified is living in accord, you might say honoring the position you are in. Those quotes I read before—I forget which uh, lecture it was in—of Aristotle and Augustine on true education, on having, hating what you should hate and loving what you should love, and giving everything its ordinate value. Um, you can't function. Not only you can't function in God's world. Not only can you not read the scriptures and know what it's actually talking about, but you also have shot yourself in the foot in a huge way if you don't know where you are. Um, if you had, what I don't know what they're called, it'll love uh, GPS, GPS systems in your car. And they said, and he said, where is Starbucks? And it puts a little dot on the map. And he said, where am I? And I said, I don't know. If it doesn't know where you are, there's no directions forthcoming. If it doesn't know where you are, if it knows where everything else is, you've got to know where you are for you to have the right ordinate valuation of what you're about. We talked a little bit yesterday about having the is and the ought worked out, that you, that you when you look at this, you know, okay, I know where I am, and I know, I know which girl's the hottest in the room, but I honestly don't think that she's gonna think I'm the hottest guy. I honestly don't think so. I know what is for you to move to where you want to be, to where you ought to be, where your talents and your skills and your mind could put you, um, <clears throat> you need to know where you stand. Not just assume. I, I, I don't know if you know Frank Chang, uh, goes to our church, the uh, uh, chemistry prof. And he's got he's always scanning the internet and the you know, uh, 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 magazines on education, higher education. And he forwarded me an article where they had done a recent poll of college students where 70% 70 of American college students thought they were in the top 10%. 70% thought they were in the top 10%. I don't think the math works. Someone is self-deceived. It says in the scripture, I think I have this, we must not see to it that no one thinks more highly of himself than he ought to think. But you ought to think, Jesus didn't go around going, you know, I, I'm not really God. He didn't, he didn't have to say, no, I'm not really powerful. He would say things like uh, he'd wash their feet and the washing thing. And they said, Look, you're our Lord and Master, you shouldn't do that. He says, you're right, I am your Lord and Master. I am your Lord and Master. And if I do this, how much more should you? You need to, the, 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 there's a leverage in knowing what dignity you stand in. There's an incentivization because women marry up, because women want as much quality as you want. They're looking for someone. They don't, don't have you be the settling marriage. Nobody's going to marry me, I'll marry him. It doesn't matter. And remember, your dignity is not merely... All of the external things, like a, I have a book on hierarchies, of course I would have a book on it, which gives all the lists of all the military systems in the world and all the royal systems and all the different kind of... How the, 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 the world of tailors works in hierarchy. I mean, everything has hierarchies listed. Those are all of the institutional expressions that as hierarchies develop naturally, institutions start naming things in the drones club, I am the grand drone. Okay? I am the grand drum. Now I want to let you know in a secret. There's only one D in Grand Drum. It's Gran, G-R-A-N-D. One word, R-O-N-D, Grand drum. People who don't know, not in the inner circle, they might put two D's in there, like Grand Drone. I'm Grand drum. Then there are Old Guard drones. Now the Old Guard drones, it's a limited set of people connect, um, Roy connect, I think who else is there, maybe two or three other old guard drums. everybody else is RD, regular drums. <laughs> Doesn't matter when you join, regular drums, you can be there for 20 years, regular drum, you'll never move up. It's a fixture, but institutions come up with just those sorts of expressions <coughs> of the hierarchy. What they're expressing in every case, in every career, every profession, they are trying to put some nomenclature to the degree of self-government, the degree of order in that arena, um, is had. When a girl becomes a prima ballerina, it means a certain thing. When you become a diva, it means a certain thing. It is speaking of the degree of control and government that person has in that arena (coughs) over their lives. Your dignity is that expression, that's what, it's not saying, I'm not a, I was a petty officer, so that, that's the most insulting thing of my career probably. I made it uh, to E4 in the Navy, which is the most insulting name in a nomenclature, a third class petty officer. I mean, it, 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 it'd kick you in the nuts. I mean, it's not, you're, you're nothing. I mean, sure, there are things below you. There are um, airmen, and there are airmen, apprentices, airmen recruits. I was third class petty officer. But I had one chevron, the legal about it. But you know where you stood. You know what but it meant what kind of government you were granted. The army has the same sort of thing. They know what it means to be a specialist, a sergeant, a staff sergeant. Those have different obligations. Now, you might never get this is—we're talking about true dignity, not can I get into institutions that will give me cool names like Grand Drum, or should they have to join the military? Or these are things that might never be recognized, that no one might ever speak of your honor adequately. But you got to do it because you have been given control, you have been given government, you have taken. And now the wonderful thing about. Government. Since if you do it well, you govern in such a way as it says, her children shall rise up and call her blessed. In Proverbs thirty-one about the proverbial uh, uh, woman, she she does all these things. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Beneficiaries of good from you do react, but it's not you're not doing it for the reaction. You're doing it because God has given you, your circumstance has given you, the skills to be this kind and greatness of man. Now the second word, honor, we run into it pretty frequently. It's the reference that others make to your dignity. It is the debt of praise, the debt of reverence, granted to a certain dignity. I have these verses for all of the new gods. They did not honor him as God. He has his dignity. God, they did not honor him. 2 Romans 13, pay all of them their dues. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Revenue to whom revenue is due. Respect to whom respect is due. Honor to whom honor is due. They held a position that that certain honors was requisite to it. Honor all men. Men just for being men. Have a certain degree of honor. (coughs) <coughs> you, you, you meet a group of men, you know, we all kind of know, we sort of grew up with this, we know what kind of speech his very manhood, I don't know him from Adam, but I know what kind of speech is doing on the map. And if he's like 14, you know, adolescence, and not quite the same. We know what kind of honor is due. If we meet somebody who's considerably older than we are, we're both, both adults, you might want call him Mr. So-and-so first until he says, no, call me Jim. And you call him Jim. But you know there is an there's an honor between men due to their dignity, due to the rank that they hold. That lets us know we should honor the emperor. Because he's an emperor, for heaven's sake. In this case, the emperor was a lunatic. A flat-out Christian killing lunatic. Worse than Barack Obama. He used Christians for lamps at his parties. Wrapped them up in gauze covered in wax and light them on fire. Not a good man. Honor the emperor. Now why? He's crazy. He's immoral. He killed his mother. Um, Yeah, he's the emperor, you idiot. He's the emperor. Now what does it mean? You're not... Remember, you can't be an American Democrat anymore in the the sense of uh, our policies or our laws of of government. That's not how the world is. Because you're left here with, I don't understand. I didn't vote for him. I don't like him. He's against God. God's going to judge him eternally. Yes, all that is true. He's the emperor. What are we referring to? He has the power. He has the control. He is the governor. Government, you as a Roman citizen, are under his government. You are dependent, a citizen of his. You're supposed to honor him. I was, uh, I get a little illustration here, I, years ago, I in the library here, a evangelical wife <coughs> of a pastor who considered herself a pastor as well. Um, came to talk to me. She was going to talk to my brother and talk to my father. Also, because um, she was involved kind of in the same group of churches we were all involved in, but over in Pullman. And uh, she had heard, you know, I knew her, but she had heard what sort of misogynist I was, and just for talking about things like that, you know, why I was shooting into the middle of the college with her husband. So she came over to see just see how bad it was. She asked for an appointment. We sat down. she started talking about it. It was a good conversation. But I said, you know, okay, we we, we differ obviously on, on these things. No, I don't believe in beating women. I no, I don't believe, in, you know, that sort of um, ex, you know trying to make uh, reduce my view to extremes so it could be rejected. But I said, no, it's not that. But I do hold views that you will think are extreme no matter what. Let's look at this Peter passage where Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. I said, what do you do with that? I mean, what do you You're a pastor. Teach me on this subject. She said, well, uh, I think the term Lord is archaic. I said, I I agree. I said, I agree. If my wife tried to call me Lord, she'd laugh. But, uh, well, tell me. I mean, sure, we do have terms in a non-archaic English language that refer to the same thing. What term of respect do you use for your husband? Well, she didn't. She didn't object to archaicism. She objected to respecting her husband. Is it the natural thing, if there were natural words, that your wife honors you with? Will she? Or have we? Not because the woman is bad, because she doesn't. She may not. Remember, she needs to be taught out of our current world system just as much as we do. But we conspire sometimes to not let them respect us. We keep insisting on how close the friendship and just friendship, just to, Okay, let's just be, a, you know, like on a big long date. We'll have be a big long date where we don't have any obligations to each other. No, we have obligations. You're a man. You're supposed to run the show. You're supposed to take responsibility. You're supposed to bring home the bacon. You're supposed to do all sorts of things. Now, and she's got to. You've got to learn not to insist on. It. Nothing is more tacky that you insist. You owe me an apology. That kind of whine. You didn't call me sir. Didn't like when an officer did that. But you knew the difference when you failed to call an officer sir, and he just looks at you like, oh my gosh, what have I done? I have tread on holy ground, I'm going to be smote. We want to be sure that we, that we reverence the whole task as well, that we don't become little, again, little martinettes, little Father Abrahams that were, yeah, cause, frankly, in conservative Christian circles, I don't know if you've run into this, the teaching about wives' submission and children obeying has done more damage to the men in Christendom than we can imagine because they have not gone into it. They have just gone into it as to what is owed them and so they act like a bunch of post-enlightenment twits demanding what is owed them. They sound like a welfare queen. They don't sound, they don't sound like a gentleman. They don't sound noble. They don't sound magnanimous. They are everything but. They are insisting on their own glory. Now, I, 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 I really want to bitch slap any number of fathers in this world who go about their children's lives or their, or their wives lives with that kind of um, self-absorption if you get taught correctly even if your wife were to go shut up old man you wouldn't react with any kind of no you've got to show me because remember when she believes you're equal any attempt to govern looks like tyranny. Too bad. Any attempt to govern looks like tyranny. Um, so you have to say, I, I obviously, you know, maybe I've got to rethink who I married, but I'm, not, I'm here, so I've got to go about the long way of building up her spiritual life until she finally realizes what it is to submit to God. Jane, in that hideous strength, um, Jane, in that hideous strength, Um, doesn't come to admire her husband at all. She doesn't, maybe a minimal change of view about her husband, she becomes a Christian. She submits herself to Maladil. She then submits herself, actually submits herself to ransom. And then via ransom, she submits herself to God and because of her submission there, God sends her, and Ransom sends her to submit to her husband. And if she's really submitted to these higher things, she will, and she did. So, if you had a troubled situation, you don't come back at it like you're all full of your own power. All discipline comes down from above. Things above rule, and you don't have the. There is no corporal punishment for wives. John said. Okay, if you're I think in Islam you can beat your wife with a stick. But that's Islam. You're not Muslims. Nothing in Christianity says you can pick up the toaster oven and smack her. So you have to reach you have to reach this. I've got this difficulty. How do I reach it? It's gotta be built. For her for her spiritual maturity and for the peace of my home, we've got to reach this place where this illustration of government is occurring, with her willingly doing it, joyfully doing it, and me exercising a responsibility that my nobility requires of me as husband. There's a quote in in, uh, Abolition Man that I ran across today, I think it was, where... Uh, we make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise as the, the magnanimous man, men without chests um, they don't have that, that soul we laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst we castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful the whole world is about tearing apart the things that they want to have as the result you want to have peace in your society you have to have right government to have right government you can't have tyranny and servility you have got to have authority when you take, as it said in Shakespeare, when you take degree away everything else is met in mere repugnancy. merely who can hurt you the most so you take honor away and you wonder why do we have traitors well because honor is not there honor was the governing thing you cut people's unit off and then go tell them to have children, it's a, an impossibility. This, we're t- talking of, they want, the moderns, want a world that only this provides. We are the ones that are examining it and understanding why it provides that world, and why their recommendations of egalitarianism and, and everybody just coming to a consensus about everything is not going to work. The next word, integrity, this is a big one i mean i think you probably could have figured out from what we already talked about that there is if with a hierarchy there'd have to be a dignity or we might not call it that but a place in the great chain of being that's what that is called gentlemen the great chain of being from god down to unformed matter the chain of authority is the great chain of being honor is the reverence to that it's much easier for us to obey the scriptures when we understand those things now Integrity, on the other hand, is a a bit more uh, hidden. I have here the honesty of our commitment to these things. Um, These things, I say here in the first line that these truths are present in us below the surface. I don't mean below the surface like subconscious or hidden, but not superficial. Maybe I should say that. These should not be superficial. These are not this is not paint, whitewash we put on. This is not a look we go after. Um, we want to be sure. When it says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, if we need honor to be coming out of our mouths, we have to believe in dignity. We have to believe that person is deserving of that merit by their emperorship, my honor. I have to believe that. If my, the words coming out of my mouth are not, yes, my lord. Whenever the emperor says something, if it's going to be heartfelt, oh king, live forever, like Daniel would say, being thrown into the lion's den. When he's down in the lion's den, I always like that. He comes the next morning, gets Daniel out, and Daniel looks up from the lion's den and says, oh king, live forever. It's, he's been in a lion's den all night. The king threw him there. The king's sorry, and he's still complimenting the king. Okay, king, live forever. It has to be inside you. It has to be, this is how you honestly view it. That you don't think differently. You don't think like a modern constitutional Republican. I do for elections and such, and I do as a citizen of the United States, and I take part and I vote and I want the right guys to win. You betcha. But I don't believe in it. I don't believe that's the best path to my personal peace, my personal humanity, my civilization. And I don't think that the rest of the world is going to join me or, or, or conspire to help out a more civilized community, but I want to teach people about what these thoughts are so that they would carry off into an American landscape covered over with all the Americanisms and loyalties and patriotisms with real sense of what the point of government is and what it's really about. Um, there is a... Uh, <clears throat> since this is admired, since it's admired by girls... It's admired by society when people are these things. We always feel inferior when we talk to an Englishman, if he's not Cockney. You know, if, if, if he's an Englishman and he has the right. I can't do accents very well. My kids can all do them. Um, and I don't want to be able to do them because ever since I went to camp in Canada and my tent mate was an English kid, and I came out speaking English for after weeks, living with this kid. Um, but I don't think it was probably very good. But people thought I was English, but I, I don't like doing that. I don't like. The, why, why don't I like doing it? I don't like Disneyland for the same reason. You say, okay, Wilson, you're losing it. you are lost your moorings, you talked too long. It's been half a week. Um, because the castle at Disneyland is made of chicken wire. That's the problem I have with it. It's fake. It's fantasy. It isn't a real castle. I like real castles. Thank you very much. I'd love to visit. I love to visit the castles. I saw Edinburgh Castle in Edinburgh. It was a great castle. It doesn't look as spirey and as as fanciful that little girls like to dream of princess dreams in, but it was a real castle. It had withstood sieges and not withstood sieges. Um, but it's too easy when we value something to be happy with the pretentious. Pretentiousness is pretense, right? Pretense, like the word pretend. It's it's being a poser. It's it's being a liar, essentially. I know these things are valuable. I'll start to act like I'm this thing. I'll, I will put on the outside the uniform, the whitewashed tomb, inside you're all rotten bones and corruption, We need to have integrity. Integrity says this is actually how I view the world. I may be an oddity but I'm real. That would be the... And and I may be completely within the... I'm not talking about someone who takes on cultural affectations of an earlier age. That's part of the poser's temptation. That's part of the pretentious because those are signals of I will have an English accent or a slight one. I will wear spats. Or I'll wear, um, you know, um, an English morning coat or something when we we'll making calls uh, to other people's houses. I, you know, those sorts of things are all part of a pose, not part of your life. You can wear flip-flops, Bermuda shorts, and a Hawaiian shirt and be the right thing. Because the right thing, just like it, with your dignity, it has to do with whether or not you have been given the government, not whether or not you have the rank that the institution that you're a sergeant or or whatever. You want the real. If it so happens that you live in a culture that the externals start to reflect how you are as a gentleman, but whatever the case, honesty... I always like to give the illustration the kid who goes to Macy's and buys a leather jacket already pre scuffed for his convenience, so it looks like he's had adventures. He's 14. He is not about to fall off a motorcycle anytime soon. He doesn't need a leather jacket unless he's falling downstairs. But what does he want it for? (coughs) Oh, it could look good. I know leather jackets can look good. But he wants to have the credits of Indiana Jones applied to him. He wants to put on a uniform that will send out a signal different than what he actually is. This is an insistence. Integrity insists that you actually are. That you are this kind of thought, this kind of mentality. The last, I, um, I make a little plug here on the page uh, 17, our last page uh, um, th- for my booklet, The Word of a Gentleman the Way of a Lady. Some of you probably have it from being lectured at Montrose over the years, but it's available on Amazon. Just type in the title and my name, and you can buy it at Amazon. It's a short book. But it's on, the key quote, the the cover quote is, one is not what one must pretend to be. Let that just be a remembrance to you. If you have to pretend to be it, you're just admitting to yourself at least that you're not that. If you have to dress up as a pirate, you're not a pirate. Pirates just get up in the morning being pirates. okay? (laughs) And when I knew bikers in California, they didn't even think about whether it was a leather jacket in the morning. They were just bad and hungover. And mean. <laughs> they didn't think, oh, I've got to put this on so I can look bad. Oh, no, <laughs> they were sufficiently bad. They, wouldn't, uh, they didn't like my presence around much. Uh, because one, I was a Christian. Two, I washed my clothes. That was maybe the very point of that. Said, so, Wilson, you wash your clothes, because I'd show up with clean Levi's, you know, at the chopper shop, and they'd chase me out, and throw rocks at me, and stuff." The last one, gravity. Um, these are the dignity and gravity are, are big Roman concepts, dignitas and gravitas. This gained a uh, 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 currency in the. Uh, Bush election, or Bush 2, when uh, George W. On, picked Dick Cheney as his vice presidential running mate, And everybody on the news, the word gravitas came out, and everybody was talking about, oh yeah, Dick Cheney brings gravitas to the ticket. That's what it was. Wait, because everybody viewed George W. as a lightweight, right? And everybody looked at Dick Cheney as bad to the bone, tough guy, get things done, shoot people on hunting trips, <laughs> things like that. He could get it done. Now, hey. gravity, like we call it with 32 feet per second square, whatever Isaac Newton invented, um, it's a weight. And these things, all doctrine, doctrine means teaching, all doctrine has an emotional charge to it. Okay. As you meditate on something, if you take these things home and think about them, or if you meditate on any spiritual Christian doctrine, certain doctrines have emotional weight to them. They affect you. As they become more and more real, as they become more and more of what you actually believe the universe is like, the effect becomes more pronounced. It's not just what, when you think about it, you feel that way. Now you do think that way, and you feel like this all the time. Gravity is one of those things that noblesse oblige the hierarchy, God in his heaven, things above you, far above you, sublime issues, solemn issues, the task that's set before you, you begin to realize we're um, grown-ups here, and uh, we got some serious stuff to do. God wants you to enjoy your life but he's given us the joys of life. God has given us everything richly to enjoy. Everything every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of light. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the vain days of your life because all the vain days of your life. God has given us joys in life not because life is going to be us running around in our backyard clasping our pledgy hands together and giggling like that pig in the Geico commercial. We're not Given that, we are given the joys of life because life's hard, sucks, and then you die. So you give these joys, these satisfactions, these benefits, but there's this weight you've got to carry. And it's not, again, it's not frustration because all of the good things that surround it, that frame it, are also true, too. You know, when you marry somebody, Either you are going to die in her life or she's going to die in yours. I don't give a think about that again. Thanks for sharing it. Thanks for being so uh, cheery. Just gotten married. You mean I've got to be with this person when she dies or she's going to be with me when I die? She's either going to grieve horribly if we last, if God is merciful to you, live 70 years married. Still, that'll just make it harder. But it will happen. The question is whether we live in the most tranquil way we can given, um, given this task and really assessing the world for what it is. It's a, um, I put it here, time to put on put on your big boy pants. It's a good uh, rule of thumb for adult living. I was thinking about it, you know, we have a policy here at the Big House about serving alcohol under the age of 21. Uh, At age 21, if we serve alcohol, you'll be offered wine or beer, whatever the case is, at a dinner where it has that. I was telling my wife the other day, I'd like to change that. I'm not going to, I'd I'd like to, because it's too hard to police. Say, when you reach big house adult status. And I say, well, you know what? The the standard would be you don't need mom to do anything for you. (laughs) And if you need mom, meaning Leslie, or me, dad, to take care of some foolish, incomplete task in your life because you're not taking care of your stuff, taking care of your life, not picking up after yourself. you need mom, then you don't get to drink. Simple, right? I'd have the policing be too hard. But that's a good rule of thumb. Do you need, are you, are you still at the stage where you need to have someone to take care of things? Or are you ready to put on those pants that, that once you get past the diaper stage, you get to pull on your own pants and go to the bathroom by yourself and you realize hey look mom I'm peeing. Sometimes we think because we've reached that I don't know if you knew this but back when you hit puberty at that point uh, your uh, genitals became sufficiently aware of the presence of women that you could have sex successfully and impregnate somebody. I don't know if you knew that. I don't know if they told you that in school. I don't know if your mom and dad told you that but that's what happened. And so now, by now, you're years into that. You're able, you have the equipment. You are able to do the adult deed. But a baby can poop its jeans. I mean, the fact that it can do something, now you can, sure, yes, I can have sex. If you need someone to take care of you, you, if the mess that you make of your life, having done that, just like a little kid, yeah, he can take a crap in his diapers, but you gotta clean it up. One time, one of my children, at that transitional time, knowing how much of a headache it was for mom to change his diaper, realized he had done a business, and said, I'm gonna help mom out. I'm gonna change it myself. (laughs) Well, never has a room stunk so bad. (laughs) And never has there been so much crap So many places. (laughs) Now, that's because he wasn't but a little kid. And the fact that you've got the capability to poop or the capability to have sex does not make you an adult. Being an adult means that the mantle of adult, the task of carrying what adults have to carry in the main. And we know that when we get sick as men, as adult men, and someone has to pick up for us, we feel that. We feel that weight. We, we realize we're inconveniencing others because it was our job to do that. We needed to take care of that. And so when you're still in the mindset, I don't have to pick up this, this heavy lifting Yeah. Well, OK, that, that, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I'm, I'm saying if a person isn't ready, if a person says, OK, I'm just a boy, I'm just a boy still, Okay, don't offer yourself to any women, even though you have the equipment, don't offer yourself to any women because you're not ready to pick it up. When you're ready to pick it up, then you've got a woman's life in your hands that it's going to take someone reasonably noble to take care of her. You've seen the TV shows or you've seen the movies where someone on a whim runs off with their boyfriend who can't take care of them, doesn't have a job, plays World of Warcraft all day. And she's working at the 7-Eleven, and he starts taking meth. I mean, that's the story. We have, um, as an example, I, I added this this year. I just wanted to read through this. This is out of this last quote, this long quote here at the end. is a scene out of the novel, Emma, by Jane Austen. And this scene is an example of the magnanimous nobility. I'll cut to the chase. It is a guy chewing out the girl okay the girl has done something wrong. The scene was they were at a picnic and there was an old spinster there, Mrs. Miss Bates and Miss Bates no no relation I gathered um, to your wife. Um, Miss Bates was unmarried, not very bright talk too much and the heroine Emma ends up insulting her. Now, what's interesting about this is Mr. Knightley, who is talking to her, um, is interested in Emma. (laughs) Okay, now this is, is interested in Emma, and Emma doesn't know (coughs) that he is. While waiting for the carriage, she found Mr. Knightley by her side. He looked around, as if to see that no one were near, and then said, Emma, I must once more speak to you as I have been used to do, a privilege rather endured than allowed, perhaps, but I must still use it. I cannot see you acting wrongly without a remonstrance. How could you be so unfeeling to Miss Bates? How could you be so insolent in your wit to a woman of her character, age, and situation? Emma, I had not thought it possible. Emma, recollected, blushed, was sorry, but tried to laugh it off. Nay, how could I help saying what I did? Nobody could have helped it. It was not so very bad. I dare say she dare say she did not understand me. I assure you, she did. She felt your full meaning. She has <coughs> talked of it since. I wish you could have heard how she talked of it, with what candor and generosity. I wish you could have heard her honoring your forbearance, in being able to pay her such attentions as she was, forever receiving from yourself and your father, when her society must be so irksome. Oh, cried Emma, I know there is not a better creature in the world, but you must allow that what is good and what is ridiculous are most unfortunately blended in her. They are blended, said he, I acknowledge, and were she prosperous, I could allow much for the occasional pro- prevalence of the ridiculous over the good. Were she a woman of fortune, I could leave every harmless absurdity to take its chance. I would not quarrel with you for any liberties of manner. Were she your equal in situation, but am consider how far this is from being the case. She is poor, she is sunk from comfort, she was born to, and if she lived to old age, must probably sink more. "'Her situation should secure your compassion. "'It was badly done indeed. "'You, whom she had known from an infant, "'whom she had seen grown up from a period "'when her notice was an honor, "'to have you now, in thoughtless spirits, and pride of the moment, laugh at her, humble her, "'and before her niece, too, and before others, "'many of whom, certainly some, "'would be entirely guided by your treatment of her. "'This is not pleasant to you, Emma.' and it is far from pleasant to me, but I must, I will, I will tell you truth while I can, satisfied with proving myself your friend by very faithful counsel and trusting that you will sometime or other do me greater justice than you can do now." It's amazing, an amazing situation in a women's romance novel to have a character that is clearly Mr. Knightley clearly the romantic lead, who has not settled, you know, nobody knows quite yet, Emma doesn't know, Emma's flirting with all sorts of other possibilities, he has to, because he's a gentleman and he is noble, saw what she did, knows full well he's got to take her to the woodshed, and does so in no and it doesn't let it drop, doesn't let her first excuse get her off, like most of us would do, because we would be realizing that we were burning our bridges of possibility, Right. Now, what's amazing about this is this is the most romantic scene in the book, according to the women. I just asked the girl walking in, Rachel Berry, who lives here, walked in. I, I finished the, the book was all set up. I said, Rachel, you know that scene in Emma? Well, she said, oh, yeah, when Mr. Knightley chews out Emma. Just, they, they, they get oh, all, they can't believe it. They love this moment. It's a gentleman going, and now it's not, say, say, so that's what does it, eh? That's, <laughs> <laughs> now, you, that's because you're an idiot. <laughs> Don't do that. You would only be able to do this if you knew that you had to do it and it might cost you her. But you had to do it because it was required of you. Spiritually, morally, socially, you had to bring something up. It's, I've had to do it in my marriage. I've had to sit down and say, look, that can't be done. And I've driven my wife to tears. And Emma collapses under the weight of this as well. And as yet, she doesn't realize Mr. A. End up getting married, so don't worry about it, but it's all fiction. Um, I've driven my wife to tears, but my wife values those moments in retrospect. She values those Because in those moments alone where she may have been in the wrong and I had to bring something up that that I, I watch it, I know it's going to cause some pain. But sometimes when you have the task of governing, remember, government will be the exercise, all government will be the exercise of reward and punishment. All government will be. The question is whether or not it's going to come from her better. Mr. Knightley is revered by Emma, an old friend of hers, has given her great counsel in her life, and now has to step in with this. But it's considered the most romantic situation in the book. And when it occurred in the movie with Gwyneth Paltrow, as Emma, it's the most romantic scene in the book. <laughs> you know, it's better than that last bit but oh, you're right. I'll be, oh, You know, every, the denouement when everybody gets together. Eh, boring. It's this thing. So recognize that even negative government, even where the girl is wrong, <coughs> the girl likes thinking of herself as wrong. Romantically, maybe not right in the moment, she feels rotten, and, and, and when I've had to correct my wife, there's it, it a, 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 a rotten feeling, oh golly, what have I done? But in the, in, if women read this kind of stuff and love this kind of stuff because for them, them being in the wrong and corrected by the man, puts everything in its right place, emotionally. Puts everything in its right place. That said, this is why you have to walk a very narrow tightrope, so that you don't fall off into being critical, being always corrective, always pulling everything she does wrong. You honor the weak woman as the weaker vessel but sometimes you have to be aware that your task as governor requires something, I think. Well, that's it. That's it for the boring stuff prior to the mojo. Tomorrow night, we're going to cover the theory of Christian relationships that is in the mojo, where the mojo got its name and uh, on, on the theoretical basis. And then on Friday, we'll be looking at the practical application of the mojo.